0: 10 to 15 years from now, there will be no operations in banks. So if you want to work for a bank, so it'll just be devs, it'll just be coders. That's the only option. Welcome to Lawagon Live. Today we're listening to Colin Payne, who's Vice President and Head of Next Gen Banking at Gemini Invent. Colin is a highly experienced digital consultant with an international award-winning portfolio. He develops strategic vision and executes detailed plans to create solutions based on over 25 years' experience at the leading edge of technology and change management. With a particular focus on product design, robotics and AI, in relation to consumer-led banking software, he inspires teams with an open, dynamic style, motivating them to deliver world-class innovative solutions he has some really exciting announcements during this podcast so definitely keep listening to hear all about it yeah i'm quite old uh as as i say, 25 years i think it's more like 30 years it's getting on now um so my journey is interesting i think for you guys um in that it's not a conventional story really um i had two loves when i was growing up uh i'm a musician by training uh i was at the royal academy um in london um studying piano Uh, as a young man. Uh, I got thrown out eventually um, because I discovered electronic music. Um, I I fell in love with work and um, grew up with some guys called Depeche Mode. They're they're in a band called Depeche Mode. So I was exposed to the the new kind of um, music coming through in the eighties. And consequently, I got got a love of um, tech I, got a, I really wanted to understand how it worked. And being a musician, I had a certain logic in my brain that was easily transferable. I found it easily transferable. Um, I was reasonably uh, decent at math, so I started putting these connections together. And we're talking in the early 80s, right? So, um, uh, you know, I programmed in 1981, 82, so way before any of you have been born. Um, basic programming, machine language, really, really early stuff. Um, but I knew from th- immediately from then on the potential was really apparent to me. And as a musician, starting to use the basic tools of coding in music was really curious to me. Um, and I followed that through, I became a producer. Um, so my first work was really about musical production. Um, and it was both audio and visual. And I really got into that. I got into the mix of the both using early computing, um, you know, using the original Apple computers and some of the Ataris. That was where I really got the, the buzz for technology and um, adapting tech hacking it uh, before there was a thing called hacking i suppose and i still i mean i had to earn money so as a musician you don't earn money very easily so i was in and out of work um so i discovered that i could i'm I'm, i was born in essex so i i kind of have this affinity with the city you know south end is on the end of the track so i got a job as a trader as well as doing my music so i was kind of shuttling between in the daytime being this insane gordon gecko do you know gordon gecko from wall street the film kind of old school 80s, serious red braces trading on the floor uh, and being a muso. So it was a kind of really weird combination, um, which eventually couldn't coexist. They couldn't Coexist together. Actually, I detested the city at that point. I got to because I was young, I was in my 20s. I just didn't like it. I didn't like the feel of the city. It it seemed like a really hideous place to me. So I ended up doing music full time. And that's when I really understood that I really wanted to combine that love of technology with producing things. Um, So that's what I did. I produced great music, I think, and um, worked with some brilliant bands. Um, produced records, produced videos, all sorts of different things. And I did that for about ten years, so touring the world with all sorts of different interesting people. Uh, People like Nine Inch Nails you might have come across, different bands I I worked with a lot. Um, But there came a point when um, actually I had a a change in my personal circumstances. I had a a family started and I settled down. And I thought actually get back into the kind of more relaxed way of life. Um, And that was my path actually. I used the technology. I started working with technology firms more intensely. Um, I started working back in the city because actually things had changed, the Big Bang had happened, things had calmed down quite a lot, and they'd been starting to use algorithms a lot more, automated trading systems. So I started really fixing together my love of technology with the city then. And that's how it converged. There's a, there's a lot more strangeness about my career because what happens, we were talking just earlier about portfolio careers. Um, so I would come in and out, I'd get bored. And I'd just stop doing one thing, move on to another, try to use the stuff I'd learn, move it into another space. Um, and I ended up working with a, a really small uh, little company, or no know, Apple, um, with this strange guy called Steve Jobs. Um, and we... Um, I got to meet him because um, uh, it was a strange set of circumstances. Johnny Ive, I don't really know Johnny Ive, he's the head of design. Uh, So we went to the same uh, university um, when I did my master's. And so I got a connection. uh, The the company Apple was doing very badly in the 90s. uh, And Steve Jobs came back and rescued it. And I worked with him on the iMac. So... That's bringing together the kind of the love of music, the love of computers, the love of Apple, and then into a kind of more production role. And since then, I've been really producing things, producing things based on technology. Um, so I think that's led me to Cap Gemini Along that path, really interesting projects. And I think my key takeaway is just go with your passion on the project, really go to the one you love, and that will serve you really well. And with Capgemini, I've done five years. I'm a vice president in Capgemini, and I lead global next generation banking. So that's what I do now. And it's been, when I look back, it's a strange journey, but almost everyone I speak to in banking, I can speak to them about something they love, um, just because I've got that kind of portfolio personality. And that's what I bring with me now. So it was a time in my life when I'd worked with banks a lot. I'd done a lot of intense work. And actually, sorry, I just remembered I'm here there's a, there's a school just up the road called the Bridge Academy. Do you know the Bridge Academy? Have you heard of it? Uh, well, I, I helped build that school, weirdly enough, because it's sponsored by UBS. And they asked me as a sort of special project to look after it, like a community project. So, I mean, so banks were really cool, but I'd gone through a lot of changes. And, yeah, I thought I'd take a break. And um, I went off on tour again. I went back to music for a couple of years. Uh, and I, I created some code that showed video for The Who, the band The Who, um, because they asked me if we could represent some of the the, the members of the band that had died on stage in a different way, which is what we did. So I took a bit of time out, worked with um, uh, Roger Daltrey, who's the lead singer, created this um, visual, and and went on tour. And actually, the guy who runs Capgemini Consulting London is a massive Who fan, he's he's an old mod. Um, And we got talking, He, he, um, he, he met me once, and he asked me to come in and meet Capgemini. He said, well, there might be a, an opportunity there. Um, and so I went and met this company. I didn't know really who Capgemini were. I didn't know the background. I didn't know what a consultancy was really. So the, the idea of a management consultancy, I had no idea. I went and met these guys. I rocked up in a pair of jeans and a leather jacket and uh, these guys were in suits. This is five years ago when consultancies were still consultancies. And actually they said, look, um, we're looking for someone to take on sort of a new style of banking consultancy, something more techno-based, Something about new banking, something about future banking. Um, and I thought, oh, what a great opportunity. This is a company with 200,000 people around the world. Massive global company, huge reach into all the clients, and a massive changing market. So I said, okay, fine, I'll take it on, but I'll need to have my own um, group within it. I can't be um, a part of the big Capgemini consultancy, I need to have something which is going to be my own and have a different flavour. And so that's where I got the opportunity. And, um, and we set up NextGen, which is the, the global group that I look at, uh, next generation, in other words, obviously, um, to focus on new banking. Uh, because frankly, banking hasn't served anyone very well for years. Um, I think that's no surprise. And what we wanted to do was really try to reinvent it so that it served all the users of uh, financial services. And that's where we are. So CapJam and I just explained to you, it's a, it's a funny organization. You've got a really heavy tech arm, uh, which is predominantly based in India. So around about 170, 180,000 people based in India, uh, who are mainly our dev teams, massive factories. Uh, the kind of work we do out of there is to support people like HSBC, Barclays. We are their platform provider. So we, we will provide them with tens of thousands of people who constantly churn code. Probably not the kind of job you'd like to go for, to be fair, Um, but you know, it serves a purpose and it's offshore and it it does the job at a very low cost for the kind of work that needs to be done. Uh, It's pretty routine, it's maintenance, it's keeping the lights on. Um, What we didn't do was really inventive work. We didn't do stuff that was really cutting edge. Uh, There was very little in the way of interesting client base. So my job was to go out to the market and to present the market with something a bit new. So to your point on the kind of work we did, There are a lot of banks looking at the moment in their their legacy systems. Do you know what I mean by legacy system? So the the, the hardware systems they have currently and the software that runs it are on average 30 to 40 years old for the major banks. So they're running on COBOL. Um, It's a dying breed of programmer. Literally, there are people just hardly living that can do the COBOL programming that's needed to maintain these systems. So the banks naturally are looking to refresh their core and to provide them with the new services to compete in a modern market. They were looking five years ago, they were looking at it thinking, well, we need to fix our core systems. And we said, well, if you're doing that, why don't you look at your end-to-end customer journey? Why don't you look at the experience that the customer goes through and see if you can consider that as a whole approach? And that was quite new in banking. It wasn't really done. Uh, Even now, customer journeys are quite infrequently done properly. Um, But anyway, that's what we started doing. We started doing really new customer journeys. Uh, So we'd look at the end-to-end delivery of a banking service, see what the customer really wanted, what they needed, and then re-engineer the whole process and the supporting operation, including technology, to deliver that service to the client. Um, And it was very successful, of course. Um, So the first kind of work we did was transform large core systems to be more modern platform systems. Um, Now, increasingly, as time's gone on, what we're doing now is much more, we call it a speedboat approach, where we look at more greenfield approaches. So you've got the legacy, that's the problem, of course. It's extremely expensive to fix that kind of problem. So a a typical core banking transformation. Any idea, budget-wise? Billions. Mm, Yeah, hundreds of millions, yeah, hundreds of millions, yeah. Um, So a lot of banks are are reluctant to spend that kind of money. Um, There's a limited uh, payback for them what we're what we're advocating now is, well, okay, keep that legacy running, use a service layer to access the legacy data you know API structure, service layer, um, and then create a new greenfield bank, maybe rebrand it, maybe not, maybe just do a new proposition, keep it connected, utilize the core, but don't rely on it, uh, and then eventually you can set your speedboat free if it's successful, and you can then replicate time and time again so that's kind of what we're doing. So we're reinventing propositions. That's what we do now. One example um, for you, just, just for now, we worked with a company called Orange, who used to be, well, they're a telco. Do you know the telco company, Orange? Um, they came to me about three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, uh, in France. And they're a very, very large provider of telco in France. 25 million customers, massive network of shops. Uh, and they said, look, you know, we see our business is becoming a utility. We'd like to increase... Our stickiness of our customers, because they're in, they're frequently changing their phones and then they change their contract. How can we, the, the question to us was, how can we um, improve that situation? Uh, and we were thinking a little bit about cross-fertilizing financial services at the time. And that's become much more important to us now. Uh, so what we did for Orange Bank was uh, build them a new bank. Uh, we, first of all, we purchased a bank for them. So they had a license, just a small one. And we built them a new bank on top of that basic. Uh, and then we launched it all within 15 months. So from start to finish, 15 months, Um, and we did it by creating a FinTech ecosystem and delivering a bunch of really intelligent services purely to related to what the customer need was in France. Uh, And it was wildly successful, so that we did last year. And now that's gonna be uh, replicated in Spain, and in Germany, and so on and so forth. The bank was a shell insurance company, had no branches whatsoever, very small number of customers, but it had a banking license. That was all I was concerned with. All I wanted was a license. Didn't care about anything else as it happened the legacy and the core were acceptable so we took the legacy and core and that became uh, our ledger so our, our, our simple when i talk about a core bank it's the ledger that records the transactions so the ins and outs the basic version of the truth for every money every cent you have in the bank uh, so we did that we knew orange wanted to use their um, outlets for their phones to sell the bank uh, but we believed it's all about the handset so all we said to them was, forget about all of that. Forget about all channels except for the handset. That's your winner. So if you simply put your bank onto your handset when you give it to your customer, they have the opportunity to acquire a banking service by switching it on. Quite simple. So the cost of acquisition is virtually zero for 25 million customers. Uh, and you will know, I don't know whether you've seen the, the Apple card that's been released now. Okay, so we, we advised Goldman Sachs on the, on the Apple card, so we did the proposition for that. Um, similar kind of... Proposition really. The idea is the bank's on your mobile, or the card in this case is on your mobile. You've got um, no cost of acquisition. It'll be an app that gets preloaded from July in, in the States, and it'll be coming over to Europe. And simply, they're looking to move the transaction of payments on Apple Pay to their card. That's all they're doing. Simple proposition. And every bank in the world should be scared of, of people like Alipay, because of course, the way they've attacked that market has made most banks. Almost irrelevant when you see the uh, the acceleration of AliPay's acquisition of clients. That there are there are now fightbacks. So things like um, PayKey. I don't know if you've come across PayKey. It's quite a cool thing actually. It's quite new. I don't, I don't even know whether it's fully released yet. But I, it's being used by one of our clients, Standard Chartered. Um, you can embed a key for your bank onto WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever it is onto the keyboard. So when the keyboard comes up to do your uh, social media of whatever whatever flavour. It could be Twitter, it could be Facebook, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, You've got a key there for the bank. So when you want to transact, it's integrated into the social media. So therefore you don't need a bank app at that point. It will surface the same products and the same services through the social media, but that's brilliant coding. That's solving a problem that was so obvious when you look back at it in hindsight, you think, Christ, why didn't someone do that three years ago? Brilliant, I didn't do it, but it's brilliant, I loved it. Uh, So I, I saw that for the first time two weeks ago and I think it's absolutely awesome. So it's been. I know it's been piloted in Korea. That's the only place it's been piloted. So really cool stuff. So con- uh, we we think consulting's dead. That's why we've rebranded. So um, for us, um, Cap Gemini Consulting, which is what I started as, has gone. It was it was destroyed last year. And the new brand we have is Cap Gemini Invent. And the idea is that the invention is more the design thinking. And it's quite it's quite serious. It's it's we've chosen that word very carefully because invention is such a positive attitude. Um, and it's not just the design thinking where, I've, I've walked into agencies where, or banks, where they do all this design thinking theatre. They've got post-its everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, oh, my God, oh, we're agile. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, there's the follow-through on that. It's okay, do the design thing, do the POC, do that, then the MVP. You, I think they talked about an MVP. And then how are you going to follow that? How are you going to scale it? How are you going to get it into customers' hands? How robust is it? Is it gonna really be up 100% of the time? All those questions are the ones that we can probably help with. Um, and and we, we do have to compete with the agencies for the classic design thinking. So my pitch is end-to-end. It's a different pitch. It's not just design thinking. It's not just consulting. It's not just delivery. It's that, it's that process where as a, as a one-stop shop, we can help you. Um, we've acquired two brilliant design agencies in the last 12 months. We've acquired an amazing innovation company. Fahrenheit 212, Idean, Adaptive Labs, they've all come to us. We've acquired one of the biggest digital marketing companies in the world, Liquid Hub. They've all been aggregated into us. So now we can do something quite spectacular. So when we approach a company, it's like, okay guys, we've got a range of services and I I suppose the important thing is we can provide a platform for them to be on so we can test and learn. And what we're not doing like consultants used to do was give you the solution straight away or or jump to the solution. We We are humble enough not to know what we're doing most of the time. And that's part of our, maybe our charm and maybe uh, our, the, the positivity of what we go in. We are going into a customer with an open mind, with a curious mindset to work with them. Uh, and so with Orange, I had no preconceived ideas when I went in there, absolutely none. I have my experience and my knowledge and some, some teams that can help me, but we're genuinely trying to understand what they're trying to achieve. And I'll just, because con- I know you wanna ask another question, but oh, with, question. with Orange, it's really interesting because they didn't really know what they, they wanted. wanted. And, and this stickiness was where we landed. So if we, could, if we could create a business plan which said, okay, you don't have to make any money from your bank, not, not a penny. So you can launch this digital bank with zero cost of acquisition. You can scale it to as many people worldwide as you want to, but you don't need to make any money on it. All you're doing is extending the life of your mobile contract by eight months on average. And that pays everything that it's cost. Brilliant. It's a brilliantly integrated Integrate, uh, it's an integration of their two businesses into something that's brand new, fresh, and keeps the customer sticky. It's, the, it's, it's that kind of impact we want to give. I had an interview with, um, it's gonna come out, I think, in, in one of the tech papers quite soon, talking about this point. Because they said, you know, you look at some of the competition, like Deloitte, um, Accenture, Fjord, with Fjord, and with some of their other agencies, it's, it's gone quite badly. The cult, they've tried to squeeze the culture together. Uh, we've not done that. Capgemini are a little bit different, I think. They're a French company. So the wagon is probably quite near to our heart, really. And they're bonkers, right, the French? The the French companies generally, they do things in a different way. They're quite entrepreneurial, they're quite um, flexible, um, and they come from a... We have a digital or a technology DNA, which is quite unique. We've always been about experimentation uh, and and pushing the boundaries uh, right from the beginning. So when we've acquired over the years, and we've acquired a lot of different companies, they've never been um, shoehorned into a culture because Capgemini's culture is about experimentation. So it's always looking for the new way to invent itself. Um, And it's humble enough, again, back to the humility, to not believe it's got all the answers. So it doesn't acquire a company and say, be like us. So I can only talk about my own experience. When they hired me, the only thing I wanted to hear was, continue to be you, do what you do, be you, don't be like us. The the only thing is we've we've now got an integrated business model So it's taken two years after the acquisitions. We've now got an integrated profit and loss account. So we've got some mechanics for helping us all work together. Because the only problem about being total autonomous is you get some uh, competition between the groups. You know, if if you're all running after some design thinking work, then there's no incentive. When the incentive is shared and you've got a joint um, opportunity to all work together, you tend to get more than the sum of the parts. I think that's what we're trying to do, get, get to be more than the summer of past. I was talking to you guys about the new offices. IDN have just moved into these amazing new offices in, on the roundabout by Old Street. Oh my God, I was there this morning, first time I have seen them, absolutely blown away. So we love to go over there and they maintain that culture. It's not about losing the cultural identity, it's about retaining that as an important part of a whole. That, that's, it, it's structurally quite like code or quite like any, any kind of structure that's sound, it has in, integrity within it. Because of that, it needs it needs its own separation, but together, working together, it's like a. Great, I live in Barcelona, so it's like a great piece of Gaudi architecture. You know, that's what it is to me. A lot of the work we do in APIs is about um, payments, because uh, I don't know whether you know much about banking, but just to bore you a little bit with regulation, there's a regulation that came out recently from the European Union called the Payments Services Directive number two, PSD2. Um, It directed banks to open their data in a different way for payments and associated services. So we've built API systems for many of the banks, um, the dev dev environments that allow them to open their APIs to anyone who wants to come in and use that API framework. So you kind of reformat the way they think and a lot of that was to open up the payment rails and to to work in a different way. Um, However, I mean I've worked on faster payments. Uh, so the ability to move from the ridiculously slow thing we had five years ago to now instant payments, real-time payments, it, it's, it's moving and evolving all the time. Um, we'll see new players coming in, new ways of transferring money, um, it's going to change with time. Um, tokenization, all sorts of different methodologies, um, I can see that changing quite... I mean, it depends where currencies go as well, but you know, at the moment payments is getting real-time, the problem for most of the old banks is they batch overnight, so it doesn't reflect a real-time balance, so we have to somehow fix that. Um, so there's a lot of innovation in that, but it, it's really about servicing rather than front-end. Banking, it's uh, limited at the moment. Um, there's quite a lot of process engineering, um, machine learning, so the lower, the lower end of AI, if you like. Uh, the problem with banks is uh, the amount of data they have, and they haven't got a clue how to use it. So step back away, I, I think you have to step away from AI, first of all, and say, have you got a, um, a data architecture that has any sense whatsoever of reality? And I'd say most banks lack that. They lack the architecture to utilise data properly. So they have flawed data pools all over the place. Um, and that's a problem because most of the time you need to try and check if you've got money laundering or your, your consumer base is correct. They, they, they struggle to do even the basics. Uh, and you see massive um, rectification bills coming for the problems they've caused. Over the last ten years, with their data, um, poor advice—you know, inconsistent advice—really, uh, uh, really bad stuff. So they've got to fix that first before they even look at AI, really, as a benefit. To your point, though, they could use technology to help that. So w- what we're using AI for at the moment is to look at their, the problems they have in rectification. Looking at things like mor- sort of mortgages, for example, they can—we can start to predict who's going to default on their mortgage in ten years' time. So we can, we've got systems that can mine information, both social information, uh, behavioral information, uh, transactional information, and also link it to um, the, the wider field. So people in your area, people who have your job, people who are in your field of expertise. We can cross-reference those and probably give a very good probability of anyone who's gonna default in 10 years' time. Um, it's, quite, it's quite scary in a way, but it's quite a simple algorithm really that does that. But that's the kind of way we're helping them with the intelligence to use that kind of information. Um, banks are a bit behind the curve, though. Uh, the kind of the decent AI we're doing is really with consumer product work, uh, where we can uh, we can use insights globally uh, to adjust supply chain um, and to optimise production, uh, also to optimise digital marketing uh, to target segment of one that kind of stuff. So we're using that kind of AI in a consumer-facing angle. I think for banks, they're gonna be the next five years focusing on the use of machine learning to fix their process problems first. Then I think they'll be in a position to start using AI. For me, AI will be interesting when you start to look at things like credit decisioning. The real basics of banking, which at the moment take huge amounts of manual processing. Uh, So if you apply for um, a bank loan, the the process is incredibly manual. Um, Now AI will take that away from that. It will look at your credit profile. It could replicate the job of a banker very easily, but then it can do a lot else. I mean, we're, we're now working with a company who... Um, the, the problem for me in, in London, for example, is a lot of people rent, and they'd like to buy, and that's not helpful for their credit history. So we're now working with the... We, we, I don't know whether you know, but we also run the tax office for the government. So we're working with the HMRC, who we work with, uh, and we're using their knowledge of contracts, rental contracts, bringing them together and saying, okay, we can validate if someone's really renting a property for £1,000 a month. So that, that person is vali- valued at that amount. They're good for that amount. Leverage that up into data for a mortgage and you've got an intelligent version of credit decisioning. You now understand this person is, is, is a, a good bet for a good mortgage or a large loan. That's how they might use AI in the future. I think there are some kind of fun uses of AI as well, but I think the really important thing for banks is deep process optimization, efficiency. That's the other thing about AI, of course, replacing people's jobs. Uh, and, and it's the big elephant in the room. Most banks want to replace 50% of the workforce in the next five years. So be aware of that. That will come because AI or machine learning, more, more, more specifically, will replace most of the manual, manual processes in the middle and back office. And that will change the entire structure of a bank's operating model. I think there's two things. One, you say the people at the top are resistant, which they are to an extent, uh, there are some people at the top of the organisation who are visionary. And, and they definitely have a great purpose for what they're trying to do. Usually at the very top, of the C-level, the C-suite, they want to leave a legacy. They're, re- they're really... They've done their, their career. They're now leading the organisation and they want to leave it in a, in a better position than when they started. Um, I don't think they're the problem. The permafrost that re- resists is underneath them. Uh, you've got a great deal of people in the upper-middle management, who are invested in those processes because they've done it for 20 years that way. If they change, they lose all that knowledge and they lose all that control and they lose all the power that they have over that. So those things are the permafrost. And I personally think that's usually a calculation of how many years to their retirement they have. It's an equal declining amount of innovation the nearer you get to retirement because you want to keep the share price up you want to keep it ticking along, you want to keep your bonuses coming in on a yearly basis, just as you would do every time. And bearing in mind, most banks require a return on investment on an annualised basis. Now, what I mean by that is, if they're going to invest in an innovation, they want the return on that innovation in, this, in the same year. I don't know any, well, I can do things quite fast, but geez, I mean, seriously, trying to get uh, a, million, a million pound investment, which is going to return 10 million within the year, built out on the street, in customers' hands, And I mean, come on, it just isn't in any way achievable. So their their environment, their governance system is broken. Their management system is broken. And unfortunately, the people at the top kind of are probably fairly oblivious to this, fairly oblivious, because it's protected. Um, So our job, when we go in, is to, in as nice a way as possible, present this existential threat. Um, And we are as blunt as that. We say to the likes of some of our biggest clients, you're dead in 10 years. As you are, you're dead. Forget about it. You, You have every aspiration in the world, but you're dead. You know, you can talk about Alipay, you can talk about Apple, suddenly they do start to get it. So you have to frame it in that context that actually that time between retirement and now is getting shorter and shorter because actually the business won't exist. So you can only lead them to the water. You can't make them drink it. But my experience in the last year has been most banks are understanding the nature of the threat is changing. Because I think last year, I would have sat here and talked about FinTech. I would have talked about challenger banks. I would have talked about the the potential threat that they pose to take the value chain away from banks. You, You all understand the value chain? So someone like a Revolut might rock up and take out FX. It's a big money spinner for banks, FX. And if you've all got Revolut cards, I've got one. I've got TransferWise as well. I've done all, I live in Barcelona. I've done every single penny of transferring on either TransferWise or Revolut. Not one penny has gone through my standard old bank. Imagine the amount they've lost over the last four years. I've done a renovation of a house, cost them a fortune. But that's my choice and that's what everyone's choosing. So the value chain's going, that's what I would have talked about last year. Now I'm talking about GAFA, I'm talking about the, um, the rise of the big tech and their interest Sorry, Gaffer, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. um, And their interest is in payments. They want to take the payments business. Because it's of... I mean, imagine Apple. Apple can just cream off the top percents and percents and percents for no effort. No cost, no investment, really. Uh, Wonderful. What a business. Um, And that's for 2 billion people worldwide. You can imagine the margin they're going to make on that. I mean, we were doing the calculations with Goldman's and uh, it's absolutely mind-blowing how much money they're going to make in the next two years. That's right. We, we talk often about operational process transformation, uh, operational innovation. So just the basics of fixing things like um, paper, use of paper. You know, we, we did some estimates on what they could save. You know, we work for HSBC. Enormous amounts of money. But to get that change in takes a lot of governance change. And the problem is they're set up as, um, you know, in, in old organisations, you've got the, um, the build, the run, the change, all these different silos of business. And we're advocating bring them all together you know who builds it runs it take responsibility for the change build the processes renew them but it does take time you're dealing with a a monolith of an organization but hsbc is a good example because look at hsbc they they operated in 90 countries two years ago they operate in 60 today 30 countries they've exited in two years because they can't facilitate the technology or the operations in those countries the micromanagement of the regulatory changes is beyond them, so you can see the, the trajectory. So, big, big change to come. If you're if you're comparing retail, let's uh, or, or, or consumer product, let's say part of consumer product is very easy to change and very agile. So, we work for Unilever, and with the you'd be amazed at their social listing centre. We run this social listing centre where it's literally like um, the most the most incre- if you love tech, it's the most amazing place because they can. They can look at their customer interaction on the social media worldwide at all times for trend analysis. So they pull the insights from that and decide how to then adjust their supply chain or adjust their marketing spend. They can do that quite easily. A bank to do a new product, to go through a regulator, to go through to that process, it's a very, very different uh, governance process uh, because the regulator's all over them. Even if the, if the bank wants to change a channel, to change an approach, To change a service, to change the amount of people servicing the service, all of that requires regulatory approval. And if it doesn't get it, you'll just get a notice and you'll have to close. Simple as that. So when I've worked for banks who are under threat of closure because the systems aren't strong enough to do the change, they have to approach that with a very, very serious attitude and invest in that. They can't invest in the innovation side. So they have a different set of um, drivers, I'd say. A little bit like the pharmaceutical industry. You couldn't do the type of agile change without going through the processes of a pharmaceutical industry. You'd have to get the approvals that you need to for the FDA or whatever it might be. You need need to have those in place. Um, So different industries, different blue chips have different approaches. I think you have to decide whether the product you have is truly innovative or able to be innovated, or is it a utility? And I look at telcos and um, banks, And I actually think most of the services are utility. They're non-discriminatory. You can't differentiate between Monzo and Starling. To take the new, even the new people on the street, you can't do, they're only doing, they're doing a current account, right? With a marketplace around it. They're different. Um, The big banks are doing aggregated services. They're doing end-to-end banking. They're all doing the same thing. So how can you innovate? What value is innovation at that point? So that's, I think, where people struggle. So when it's a utility, how can you genuinely innovate? Their obsession with customer experience has been where things have shifted. Um, So if most of you, I'm sure, have some kind of digital, uh, some kind of fintech account of some sort, um, or interaction with them, for me, when I started using those new, um, I was a Mondo customer, um, or beta actually, beta tester. Um, So when I first saw their approach to the the current account, Um, It was absolutely revelatory to me as well. I was really excited. Um, They were so focused on the customer need um, and so transparent. There were were two things that were happening. First, they were listening to their customers and building them um, features they wanted, which, you know, I've never come across a bank that would do that, ever. You know, they would simply um, broadcast products. That's what banks do. They would create the products in the silo and take it or leave it. And we've got a captive audience because they're literally in the branch or literally, they've got no choice because that's the only way they do it. And most of them are very uneducated in finance, so they go to their, the place they know, their bank. Suddenly, these guys came out onto the scene, and it was fresh, fresh new approach to the channel. You yeah, the card, the, the, you know that that blush, flush, flamingo pink card. Wonderful. I think it's called something else. It's not called flamingo pink. Cool. But... Coral. Very nice. Um, but that that was that was that was a kind of critical thing. The way they marketed it in you know, in, in Silicon uh, Roundabout. That whole, they went for Shoreditch. And, and they blasted us. I was in Shoreditch at the time and that's what they were going for. They were going for people like you. They wanted the movers, the shakers, the ones who were gonna really take it forward. Not only that though, they, they then kept it transparent. They kept it, they kept that integrity. And you suddenly had a new version of trust in banking. It was like, oh, okay, we hate these banks, these banks we love. And it's like, why do we love these banks? Um, because essentially they're doing the same thing, same product. they talk to us differently. There was a tone of voice, they're human. You know, I was phoning them up, they'd they'd talk to me. There's the great chat that's online. Their monthly communications were humanistic. They weren't like a bank, sounding like some awful tome of detail. God, I'm not even gonna read any of it. This was kind of friendly and it was open. Then the thing that crunched it for me was then they they published their backlog. Yeah, so you all know what a backlog is, yeah? Yeah. So they, they create this backlog of features and they went to the they went to us the customers and said, look, we don't really know what we want to build. We have got a load of stuff we want to build. Can you tell us what's really important to you? And they published their backlog. A bank published their backlog. Never ever since for two years ago. Never seen it before. That's that's trust. That's a, that's a relationship. So for me, that's about the relationship they're building as a brand. That was totally different to any bank I'd ever come across. And then you look at you know, I mean, and, and each of them have a different. Um, facets which I think are important. For me Starling Bank, um and I employ two of them and we work with them. Um and I do like their product and I use that. Starling Bank, they they have a single purpose. They want one product and they want it to be the best on the planet. They want to offer you the best digital current account on the planet. And that's what they're focused on. And they're obsessed about it. They don't care about the rest of it. The loans, the the wealth management, da da da. da. We'll do that as a marketplace and we'll make couple of percent on everything we do through that. Brilliant. Choose the best product to give to your customers. Surface it like Uber would do or Amazon or whoever. Make it a platform and deliver them the best. And you focus on what's really important, which is actually your central transactional account and make that right. All of that, that's all a mindset. That's a customer mindset. Absolutely and utterly 360 degrees or 180 degrees different to the bank's. Totally and utterly different. Um, And that's what was really important to me. And their adoption of the platform mindset was the other thing. You know, not having to build it all in-house, not running it on legacy, running it on a cloud. I mean, like cloud. So two and a half years ago, HSBC told me, no, I I said, look, go to Amazon. They'll build you the cloud. They'll do it. It'll be totally secure. We've done it with HMRC. And we put the cabinet office on the cloud two and a half years ago. Pretty important, really, for the government to choose that. The security's pretty good. No, HSBC will build their own cloud. We're better than that. We have better experts, da-da-da-da-da. And I can tell you this year they've changed their mind, of course, and now, they're in, they're now we're putting them onto Amazon and, and it's, a, it's a great exercise, but they could have done it two and a half years ago. Open banking, open data, access. Of course, it, it entirely undermines their business model because their business model is keeping all of the data to themselves, keeping it safe, keeping it secure. It's not for you them. And that's the difference. It was that difference in mindset. Where someone like Apple, what do they do when they launch the card? The first thing they do, top of the line, we're never, ever going to use your data. And Goldman's come online and say the same thing. We will never use your data. Whether you believe them or not, whether you believe them or not, I was going to say, I don't know. But what I say is, and the reason I, we got them to say it was, if they've publicly said it and they get found out, that's the only thing that holds them to account. If they don't publicly say it, then they'll, they can do whatever they like. But at least you've got that so i think that's the kind of shift in mindset let alone the real outliers like the revolutes, the, the ones who are really i mean and look they don't get it right all the time um in learning they're, they're babies and they fall they fall over occasionally uh so Revolutes, i don't know if you saw the Revolute. um uh, the well this this year's was it this year's valentine's thing um you okay hun it's become a very, very wildly contested. It was a wonderful thing. They they mined their data, this is Revolut, mined their data to estimate how many people are single using the platform, uh, and then put an advert on the tube to all of their single users. First of all, single shaming, lovely. Um, and then also using the data when they shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Um, you okay, hun? It was a kind of a jokey thing. We understood the intent. It was supposed to be sweet. Backfired quite badly. And also, uh, their overexpansion has really hurt them as well. So. They're not all getting it right, and some are gonna fall by the wayside, and a lot of them are gonna be consumed by the big banks. So there is change, but we'll see. It's just changed the mindset of banking. They genuinely are. I think think to the point we made earlier, there is a permafrost, which is difficult to break, of um, reluctance to change. Um, There are also barriers. I don't know about you guys. I found it very, when I was working with a couple of the big banks last year, I wanted to recruit some brilliant coders. Difficult really difficult to get them to come and join. You know, uh, despite what I might say to them, you know, well, who are you gonna go to? And they're like, Google, we're gonna go to Google. Guys, you're gonna be coding one pixel on the front bloody page. What, why are you doing that? What, what's the value of that? But they, they don't wanna work for a bank. So we've gotta change that mindset as well. And so some banks are doing it in a different way. I, th- I think that's what I go back to, the, the change in their business and operating models. Um, all of that stuff will be coded. Um, and it will be up to the guys in this room, these kind of, you guys, who are interested in, in that kind of problem to go in and work in that environment. And I think it will, it will be, I mean, it's still not there yet. I still think there's a way to go, but um, I think some of the banks are better than others. Uh, and I think, I mean, some of, the, some, of the, some of the American banks, yeah. But I mean, I, I look towards the um, DBS, which is in, in Singapore, an amazing um, digital bank. Uh, Standard Chartered launched a new digital bank. Um, you mentioned SocGen. So SocGen, Societe Generale, one of the uh, links to your partners, right? So I met the um, CEO a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's, he's on our board, a lovely guy, amazing guy. And he was giving us um, a bit of a presentation like this, a few of us, and he was chatting to some of the younger kids who are working with me, really. Um, this guy, so he's, he's the CEO of SocGen, globally. Um, he wanted to launch this new digital bank, um, it's called uh, Borsorama, kind of a bit of a quirky French. It shows you, you know, French, right? Um, and he, he got really involved with it. He got curious about it. And this was two years ago. Um, and he said, what's this, you know, what are you doing? What, what? And there's like code, And they're looking at this code. So like, what is all this stuff? And anyway, he heard it was Python. And so he took six months out, learned Python. Okay, so he's not a brilliant coder. He'd be the first to admit it. But this is the CEO of a major global bank decided he wants to learn Python. And oh, what an amazing guy. So for me, that's the kind of person you'd want to focus on. So if you can find that kind of leader in a bank, and there are them. So in, in um, HSBC, you've got um, Josh Bossomley. So Josh Bossomley is ex-Google. He's now the head of digital. There are the people. You've got Zach in uh, Lloyds Bank. These people are ex-big tech, who have come in to re-energize and renovate the operating models in these banks. So they will be agile. They will move to no-ops. And and I don't know whether you know the terminology and I don't want to fuzzy brain with it, but we've got Agile, which I'm sure you've all come across, Agile work. DevOps is the combination of development and ops together. So IT and business working together. And we talk about no-ops quite soon. So it'll just be devs, it'll just be coders. There'll be no operations in banks. That's what they're they're aiming at. 10 to 15 years from now, there will be no-ops. So if you want to work for a bank, code. That's the only option. Honestly, only option. I think, I think the jury's out on cards as a, as a long-term strategy. I think when it's someone like an Apple and they're doing a titanium um, designer piece, which is really just a, a backup for your phone, just in case the phone tap doesn't work or the, the watch tap doesn't work, that's all it is, and it's a status symbol. That's all it is. Um, someone like a Curve, I think Curve or, or Revolut, as, as the original card was, um, they're great value chain nibblers they take away a lot of the value out of the banks. Long-term remains to be seen whether they can scale and sustain that scaling. Because regardless of what you say about the banks, HSBC is aiming at a billion customers. That's where its its objective is to gain a billion customers, which you you understand the scale. Even with Lloyds Bank, just as a national bank, 26 million active customers. When you compare that to Monzo with their 1.9 million, some of them not so active and many of them not primary account holders, or, they, or certainly their salary doesn't go there. Um, it's a very different um, area to play in. And also, are you gonna make the money, the margin, is the margin still gonna be there in five years time on that, on that business? Possibly not, because the margins are eroding all the time on that business. Um, the margins that are really look, useful are long-term, large-scale lending. That's where money's made banks can still operate in that area or asset-backed finance or controlling that arena. Transactional banking, card banking, small margin business needs scale to operate and to to remain profitable. I'm not entirely convinced all of the players will remain there. I think their innovations will will remain and they'll be acquired and they will combine their power. That's my my view. Uh, still a lot of people don't trust those digital banks to put their salary into, as I say. So they're definitely trying to get us to switch That's important to them. Um, I think, uh, take Barclays, they've hired, in the last six months, they've hired 80 designers, uh, service designers and um, UX designers. So they've increased their capability internally. Uh, They've got great customer testing facilities. They've got every chance to do it. They've they've got the right strategy in place to do great design. Again, I'll just talk about the permafrost. The, The problem is not coming up with a great innovation. The ideas are easy. The execution of those ideas to get them into someone's hands is quite difficult for banks. They have a lot of gates to go through to ensure, with the regulator and internally, that the customer can get the innovation quickly. So they appear to be catching up all the time. But to be fair, I work with Barclays on Pingit. There's a a few examples of innovation they've done. Cloudit was a not so successful one, but they've done innovation, they've done things. You walk into the branches of someone like a Barclays, they're quite cutting edge, they're they're pretty good. ATMs, they're, they're an innovation. Banks have been quite good at innovating. And they've been quite good at that for decades. So I wouldn't write them off. I personally think the fintechs will be nudging them to get better at it. I think they've responded to that. And I think you will get a different trajectory over the next five years. Uh, and I think if not, the banks have got the money just to buy the fintechs or the challenger banks. So they'll just acquire them. The, the, big, thing we're, the big thing we're doing is we're creating a platform for all those fintechs to work with the banks. So if any of you are, you know, as you graduate from this program, I'll be looking for some kind of dev design, capabilities from you guys. So make sure you kind of keep in touch with us, because we need to build that kind of platform-based team to be able to then take this back to the banks. So our, our, our view is the banks will still struggle to do it internally. We will help them activate that network and do it in a different way for them. That's our plan. Thanks for listening to LeWagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.